and welcome to the Morbid Museum. We are your hosts, Katie Mead and Luke Boyd. Hello. You guys, we are so excited to be back with you again. Luke and I just went through hell trying to get our recording going, but we did it. We stuck it out. We're making it happen for you. Thank you so much for being with us again. Hope you made it through the draft riots. Those were really two very intense episodes with a lot of insane happenings. And to continue that trend, Luke, what do you want to talk about today? Yes. Today's subject, folks, dovetails rather nicely with what Katie laid out last week in our discussion, the last two weeks, our discussion of the draft riots. So we were hitting on the subject of the reason for the war itself, what the Civil War was fought over. And and you can argue that point as people have and continue to do, but ultimately it's what kind of nation would America be and what would the black person be in that country? Right. And in the North, as in the South, you know, the power structure, the white majority grappled with the idea of black citizenship and equal rights. You know, the idea that people opposed it straight up fundamentally saying it was, you know, not, it was against their culture as white Anglo-Saxons or whatever. And there were those who said the same God, you know, would say we must free the African from the the chains of bondage. Mm-hmm. And there were so many more disagreements on what to do with the emancipated or freed folk. Send oh, them yes. to Africa was a thought, you know. Yeah, we've uh, mentioned that, that one a couple times. We have, you know, yeah. the returnists, Liberia, all of these kinds of things. Um, right. And so basically what it came down to was even the rank and file man in the Union Army may have been opposed to slavery, may have worked in a factory, never even had enslaved people. But when they're confronted with fighting alongside a person of color in the war or fighting for on their behalf, you know, how many of them when put to the test would defend the rights of a person of color? So this is what it's all about. And we're going to be talking yeah. about the... Uh, what's called the USCT or the US colored troops that were created in the midst of the American Civil War in which men of color could fight for the Union to defend the country that had enslaved them or their ancestors for so many years. Yeah, it's it's such an amazing story on so many levels. And I know you're going to give us a really nice deep dive. But one of the craziest things up front is what you just said, Luke, the middle of the war. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not Mm -hmm. like you would think if this war is about the liberty of my people and the lives of my people, we would be asked up front what we would like to do. But no, that's not how America rolls. No, it's isn't it interesting that the plotting incremental nature of the government so, too, in the in the crisis of war was turning in such a way that these moves politically were seen to basically liberating the slaves eventually, as Lincoln does in 1863, but also allowing them to fight, as he does, is a Mm -hmm. huge step that he could could not have run on in 1860, or he could not have said, two arms, two arms, we're going to put, you know, 100,000, you know, black men in the Union blue. It happened out of necessity. It was a uh, some kind of externality through war that allowed black men to get a larger piece of the of civil civil liberties and civil rights yeah. as new york is burning during the draft riots this story 
is developing in the same continent across the continent there are black units being created and they are preparing to take the field against the confederates so we're going to talk a lot this week about um one of the one of the units and we'll talk about some more famous units the week following this is a two-part series but i first want to sort of unpack a little bit of the initial want of many men of color to serve in the armed forces which predated predated the american civil war Um, oh yay i was hoping you'd do this (laughs) okay so there's a long history here and it's really hard not to get too carried away but if you imagine when fort sumter in south carolina was fired upon you know people in the north and the south men were running to their you know enlistment offices to join the fight to defend the confederacy or the north Absolutely. They were thrilled to join the fight. They were excited to join yes. the fight, particularly the Confederates. It was like, <laughs> this is going to be great. So you have this nation tearing itself apart. And there were so many free black men that wanted to yeah. serve in, in the army, people in the North who had been emancipated or, you know, been, been, uh, been freed years before self-emancipated if they escaped. And there was an unfortunate law from 1792 that barred people of color from serving in the United States Army, even though they had served in the American Revolution and some served in the War of 1812. Um, Hello. Hello. (laughs) As we know. So people of color are involved in every conflict on both sides, actually, too, which is amazing. Um, So it's like we're not going to be able to totally go in on that entire story, which is a really interesting subseries. Um we've kicked it around here and there. I we have and, you know we talked about it a little bit with the Patriot and you know, what is accurate and so very inaccurate about black service. Oh yes, I know. I'm thinking of the Patriot a lot now again. Yeah I bet um, going back to that story. And in fact in Boston there was a group of volunteers who met and passed a resolution requesting that the local that the government by the, the federal the federals would modify their laws. Uh, to permit their enlistment. So these guys got po- they got mm. together, they got organized. There were so many people f- saying that you should give these guys the chance to fight and you know that we would not regret it being the white power structure. So the great inestimable uh, former enslaved person Frederick Douglass, you know, now an abolitionist in the north, a man of letters, famously said about the concept of black men fighting in the army. Once let the black man get upon his person, the brass letter, U.S., and let him get an eagle on his button and a musket on his shoulder and bullets in his pocket. There is no power on earth that can deny that he has earned the right to citizenship. Mm. Stirring words. And Douglas knows what he's talking about because, and so does the white power structure that you give the you give the Negro a gun. That's one step closer to citizenship, to freedom. As you were saying during the draft riots, people were fighting because they were white and Irish and they were conscripted and they didn't want to fight for the people of color who they couldn't even fight because they were disallowed to fight. Yeah. So looking back on it, it seems very matter of fact that, of course, black men would fight in the Civil War. That's what this is all about. This is a this is a fighting force that's able bodied and, you know, available. It, while to us, it makes sense to a very racist, <laughs> even though perhaps well-meaning Union Army, they're still mostly very racist. Yes. They are not equal 
They should not have to sleep alongside each other, work alongside each other. And the idea of giving them guns, as we again talked about in the Patriot episode, is a terrifying prospect without question. You know, so it's (laughs) I quote unquote get why. Yes. But it's also it seems for someone who's a true abolitionist and believed in black equality or at least the equality of men um, they have an excellent argument as to why they should be allowed to serve yes and this is just the embodiment of the discomfort that we tried to discuss in the beginning of the episode of being alongside your neighbor in this case breaking that segregation of society in this case it was so class-based and status-based and now you're both equalized the military is the great equalizer everybody gets their hair cut a certain way everybody gets the uniform and you know you all are given the same status And, you know, Lincoln rejected the idea of using African-American folks in combat when the war first started because he believed that he knew the union, the union's block of states was fragile. And you've got those border states, those darn border states, Maryland and those guys, um, (laughs) Delaware. And they, of course, would threaten to secede from the union if something like this was to happen with so many slaveholders in those states. If you then say, okay, your enslaved people are now fighting in the army for the union, whatever, disrupting their property. Um, that, that was a very fragile, ta- you know, band of states. And so he didn't want to upset those folks as we've heard before with the declaration of independence and blah, blah, blah. Yep. A lot of hand holding throughout his A lot of hand holding, <laughs> And you've got two things. You've got the white fantasy of, you know, people would say that, oh, if you enlist black men the white guys are just going to shoot them like you know in the unit they'll just turn and turn turn ranks and fire and then you've got yep. the white fear of what the black folks will do with a gun oh they'll shoot that they'll, for revenge they'll do the same yeah, yeah they'll do the same yeah. so it's such a fun argument you can imagine. <laughs> meanwhile nope <laughs> in either direction <laughs> no it wouldn't ne- it wouldn't really happen sustainably it, it could happen in an isolated incident but if you're in the middle of a garrison then all the other guns just point at you and click click boom it's over very quickly you know yeah what was the point of it <laughs> What was the point? Um, but there were outliers, you know, abolitionists who believed that you should give that these that these colored troops should exist. One of them was a really insane person named James Henry Lane. I love a three namer. You always yeah. know it's going to be a problem. James Henry Lane, <laughs> Senator James Henry Lane from. Thank the, you very much. Thank you from the great non chaotic state of Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> It's not bleeding or nothing. It's fine. As Katie mentions, bleeding Kansas. So we're talking about an oft-forgotten, you know, the border, the western border of the country at this time is still Midwest. And places like Oklahoma, Kansas, Missouri, these borders are not defined. And they have been fought over for the last 40 years about what's slave and what's free. You could also call them shit show states. (laughs) I, have n- I didn't. We did not workshop that. That was not approved. <laughs> you can call them flyover they states. You can call them flyover. <laughs> no, I meant. States. I didn't mean now. I meant then. <laughs> now, now I have. Now I have no opinion. I've never been to those places. No comment. Correct. Okay. They could great. be lovely. No I don't yeah. know. <laughs> no, but they were on the frontier, and they were lawless. And you have all these little you know, factions and fights and, you know, um, yes. a lot of violence about the issue of slavery in these states. And Kansas was very anti-slavery. Yes. 
And so some would say that uh, this guy Lane, he was a Democrat before the war, but during the war, he makes a quick switch to being a Republican. And he is shouting from the rooftops of Kansas, a state of plains, <laughs> from the mountaintops. But um, he's saying that the effect of marching an army on the soil of any slave state will be to instill into the slaves a determined purpose to free themselves and will crush out everything that stands in the way of acquiring that freedom. So Lane is saying that you have this black army marching into Georgia and it would inspire the, the enslaved folks to like drop their field tools and like just mm -hmm. run into the army, right? You know, he envisions that there's a colored army marching out of the slave states while an army of freedom is marching in. Um, so he's fiery rhetoric. Some say that he is using this as a, as a rhetorical tool to advance his position or that he's something mm -hmm. of a radical, but he actually does it. He creates his own unit in 1862. I mean, it is radical. It is super radical it, for the time. And also like, there's gotta be something that he understood the idea of a troop of black soldiers marching into the South. That is the South's worst fucking nightmare. Correct. Correct. I mean, it's amazing. They'd all shit their pants immediately. <laughs> so you have these outlier guys who are saying, okay, let's let's try this, right? And you know, what you're talking yeah. about, Katie, is what we often talk about is something called the Zeitgeist, which is like mm -hmm. in the German is the spirit of the age. And that's what these scenes, whether it was fears of of white fears of black violence against women white fears right. of losing status you know all of these things are floating around these fear fantasies this yeah. is what it's all about and there's there's fear fantasies in the north too about what that means for the post-civil war reality but it's oh we are i mean the draft riot is draft riots was a part of it. on some of that yeah Exactly. So the whole nation is like, what are we going to be? Everybody's got a fucking opinion. We're a startup country. It's fucking annoying. <laughs> like, so it's just it's cool that we get pizza on Fridays. But otherwise, what are we doing? <laughs> we love Harper's Weekly. We hate everything else. Um, <laughs> so what happens is the war drags on. So the positions you had in 1860 by 1862, you're pretty desperate. So yeah. there are so many formerly enslaved people now called contrabands in the North. So people who had escaped, people who had been liberated and um, these contraband numbers are growing. There's less and less white volunteers, the draft. Yeah. Hello. And the increasingly, you know, we need more personnel. We need people in the field, you know, to, to do the work of just not even being in the army, but like being cooks and being field support and like building sure. fortresses and all the other stuff, which of course is where we want to put people of color. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> They're not, not gonna on get the front great lines. jobs. Yeah. No. So in 1862, there's a confiscation act which allows um, freed slaves to uh, join the Confederate Confederate Army, which is interesting. Um, and so there's conf there's Confederate there's Confederate evidence of this as well. Um, and just a few days after that, in July of 1862, Abraham Lincoln shows his first draft of the Emancipation Proclamation, which he'll release in. Um, September of 1862 to his cabinet. So things are moving quickly on both sides, both trying mm -hmm. to make use of this fighting force. So as a result, in 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation formally declares any slave in a rebelling state to be freed. Not the northern border states, but anybody who's in a southern state in rebellion, you are now freed. And yes. further, five months later, after January 1st, 1863, when it becomes law, 
the borough, the Bureau of Colored Troops is created in May of 1863. Mm-hmm. They they created 175 different units that served in the Union Army. 175. That's incredible. That's over 178,000 men. Wow. That's a lot of people. Wow. That's not nothing. That's a Almost great a quarter, recruit. quarter million. Yeah. That's and way so better you, than what the draft was going to give them. That's exactly <laughs> right. The draft was what, 100,000 men total? Yeah. This is a real yeah. shot in the arm. So the draft riot is still happening while this influx is happening. So the, they must have trickled right, in over yeah. the last 18 months. Um, so these guys did everything. They were infantry, cavalry. They were engineers, um, artillery, guys with cannon. Um, and, they, so they, and they were recruited from all states of the Union. So every state in the Union sent black regiments and units to fight in the war. Which was again there, also, yeah. Sorry, Luke. Um, Please. Was there much in the way of upward mobility within the ranks for? That's a great that's a great question. There was not. So there was not I many figured. opportunities for advancement. Yeah, it was pretty limited. And in fact, a lot of the times, you know, people would be stuck with really menial jobs. Um, so they had they dealt yeah. with racism all the time. Um, sure. So they did things like laborers. They were teamsters helping, you know, teams of oxen or horses lift things, carry things. They served as cooks and did other support work. Um, these were essential duties, of course, but not glamorous, course, not exciting, right? service. No. Um, so the colored troops first got involved with some building efforts. They helped build Fort Pocahontas, which was in Charles City, Virginia, which is a supply depot. Um, but eventually the guys were sent into combat. Um, and I should say, to answer your question, there were more than 100 commissioned officers who finally did rise in the ranks. Um, that's amazing. Yeah. There were non-commissioned, like you're a lieutenant, like boop, but there also were like, you know, commissioned, which are more formal, you know, service positions. And so these were guys were surgeons largely and chaplains. So. Wow. Surgeons. Yeah. You're operating on everybody. You're in charge of their spiritual health and their, their physical health. Basically. I'm getting, I'm going back to the Nick now too. Oh my God. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I'm traveling. Black doctors. Amazing. No, oh, isn't that interesting though? I mean, you know, that these guys had medical training fucking too. Fascinating. Fascinating. I love that. Yeah. Um, and I believe as depicted in one of our favorite films, Glory, there of course was a pay inequity situation. Naturally. <laughs> so I believe the men were paid like the union, the men in the union, the white men were paid $13 a month. And I believe the black men were paid 10. Um, 10. Yeah. I remember and that. It, and it eventually this was regulated and made equal um, due to the protests of officers and, you know, people, once people, once the abolitionists got a, a, a whiff of that, forget about it. Like, you know, every newspaper was blowing up with that information. Yeah. Um, and we talked about the number of guys who served, less than 200,000 men served in the U.S. colored troops. And um, there were 2,700 combat casualties, guys who died in the field. And then there were about 68,000 losses from disease, infection, um, yeah, all that fun stuff. So, you know, we've got quite a number taken out during the conflict. And what's interesting is that studies have shown that the mortality rate amongst the USCT, the colored troops in the Civil War, was 35% greater than that among other troops, meaning the white troops. And that this is mm-hmm. notwithstanding the fact that they were formed until 18 months after the fighting began. Right. It's not like it's from the top. It's not like Correct. when it started. So that's even Correct. worse. For a micro group, you know, they did see quite a bit of action 
and quite a bit of blood was spilled. Do you, th yeah, I was going to say, would the causes behind that be the stage of the war that they entered? It's a bloodier conflict at that point. Um, the disease is far more rampant at that point, one would assume. Um, the total you know, war. Yeah, you're right. There's, it's We're in total war at that point. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of starvation, a lack of basic resources. I mean, we've talked about all this stuff before. They've got like scurvy and yeah. fucking dysentery well, maybe, all over maybe the this place. Will, maybe this will illuminate for you. One of their most yes. heroic and famous actions was what's called the Battle of the Crater in Petersburg. I'm ready. I'm ready for which, this. <laughs> which was, I'm not going to go into the crater. That's its own morbid episode. But as the name Damn suggests, <laughs> this battlefield was like, okay, it would be like if two five-year-olds were like playing with water, with water guns. Imagine that's like two artillery units, like just bombing the hell until you are literally in a crater and you're trapped in the crater and the people around the crater are trying to kill you in the crater. Oh my God. That's, that's very trench warfare also. It's horrific. And it was like bodies, bodies, bodies. Like it was just a bad situation all around. So you're right. They got in some really hot shit, hot fighting. Yeah, they like, did. Yeah. Really dark shit. You've got late stage conflict. People are saying, you know, let's burn everything down. Sherman March yeah. into the sea. Like you're saying, total war. You know, World War II type shit. Um, mm -hmm. burning, burning towns, burning everything, you know, scorched earth. Cutting off whatever supply lines possibly exist. Yes. Yeah. And I think to your question... You know, there's a something that's been, that last been said about the ferocity of 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 the U.S. colored troops that they were more ferocious than others, and some people noted they were fighting for their freedom, right? As they, you know, what animated them to fight, but they also knew that in many cases the Confederates would not um, take prisoners if they were black; they would kill them. Absolutely, fucking not. No way. And there were there are several examples of that. So the rules mm. of civility and prisoner exchange are in some ways influenced at least in the United States. And then, you know, the United States takes the stage internationally, you know, so that's actually has its roots, some say, in this U.S. colored troop story, which is fascinating. That is fascinating. Yeah. So the U.S. colored troops are very famous. At least one unit is very famous. And um, that would be the Massachusetts 54th um, that was famously, that famously fought in the Battle of Fort Wagner in July of 1863, around this anniversary, 160 years ago. And we're going to talk about those guys next week. But this week, we're going to talk. <laughs> well, <laughs> this week, we're going to talk. We're going to talk about the first Kansas colored infantry regiment. I'm ready. Okay. We've been breathed. You've been briefed, my darling. So I've been breathed. Um, you've been breathed. It's breathless. Um, don't leave me <laughs> breathless. Left, you left me breathless. <laughs> so. There was no federal authorization to create U.S. colored troops prior to May of 1863. We know there was another unit that was formed in 1862 in Kansas by that guy I talked about, James that Henry nutty, That nutter. <laughs> that nut job. He's, he's back. So Secretary of War Edwin Stanton played with played to perfection in the Lincoln movie by uh, Kevin Kline. I love Delish. him so much. Delish. He's my favorite person. <laughs> oh, no. It was, he, would play, he played him in... The conspirator, I believe. Did you see that? Yeah, he's not in glory. No, no. So yeah, the, the conspirator, the Mary Surratt movie with um, Robin Wright as the school marm who <laughs> took over the the assassination plot of Lincoln. She was. She plays Mary Surratt. That's hilarious. 
beautiful <laughs> cheekbones on Mary Surratt. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Killing you. James McAvoy plays the part, the prosecuting lawyer or the defending lawyer. It's like a military tribunal. Him. Okay. Mm-hmm. So side story, Kevin Klein plays Edwin Stanton in some movie. We don't quite know, but what we do know is that Edwin Stanton was a son of a bitch with a sassy ass beard and tiny glasses. And he was chunky he was... and chubby. So I, I appreciate him. I appreciate him too. So Edwin Stanton is like, there is no such thing as black troops. No such thing. Let it be said when he meets these firebrands like Lane. Um, mm-hmm. So Lane says, screw you guys. I'm going to form my own unit. And he creates his own unit in Kansas. The first Kansas colored infantry regiment, the first, the first real fighting force of color in the United States proper history. And he forms it in, you know, late summer of 1862. It's a lot of, it's a lot of guys who were formerly enslaved in Missouri and Kansas. They're self-emancipated. So they've escaped. Um, and these guys first saw action at what at what's called the Battle of Island Mound in Missouri on October 29th, October 29th, 1862. This is a skirmish. It's sometimes called a battle. It's really more of a skirmish, which I don't want to, you know, yeah. have a hierarchy, no hierarchy of suffering here. Um, but basically, there were uh, 500 Confederate guerrillas, and they were repelled at this battle, battle site by 225 black troops. So they had a quick, you know, they were outnumbered two to one, and they they fought them off bravely. Um, mm. Senator Lane used this incident. This is why we're still talking about it, because Henry Lane went back to the newspapers and made a big stink about it and said <laughs> that this was proof that blacks could fight with intelligence and bravery. Eh? So fuck you. <laughs> I told you. They sent those Confederate guerrillas running away. Um, so the story gets picked up by the New York Times, Harper's Weekly, and it said that they stood their ground and fought with desperate bravery. Because Ooh. again, a fate worse than death would await them if they were to be captured or killed by Confederates, right? We're talking yeah. brutality. You don't want that ending if you're a part of the colored troops. Um, there's another quote from Richard Hinton, who was the adjutant uh, leader of the 1st Kansas Colored Infantry Regiment. He said, the men fought like tigers, each and mm. every one of them. And the main difficulty was to hold them all well in hand. So interesting. This, power, this This primal power, right? And it's like... Thank God we can harness it for the union. Oh, you know, so it's very right. romantic already from the jump. Um, and like I said, there's a ferocity to the fighting, you know, uh, arguably because it's a release of a lot of things that probably those men have been feeling their whole lives. And what's fascinating is it's this is pre pre emancipation proclamation or had it pre emancipation. Right. So that's even more impressive because you're not fighting think assuming that this will be the end of slavery Mm -hmm. so that's fascinating because that's not on the table really i mean it's it's being talked about of course like people know that's a strong outcome of this conflict should the south lose but yeah it's not like it's a a foregone conclusion if you get up and start fighting no it's not and like we were saying it's like it's we can say reductively the Civil War was fought for slavery. It's like, okay, the Southern states rebelled. They seceded. The Union states fought to preserve the Union. But why did the Southern states secede? Because they were concerned about the future of their institution. Yeah. So it was a part of it. You know, the Union was fighting to protect, protect, protect the country, you know, which is a economic and patriotic idea. But it's all sure. about slavery. I know. mean, also, if you really want to be reductive about all of it, it's all about money. 
<laughs> on exactly. It's spectrum. capitalist. Let's preserve <laughs> the economy at all costs in which we can maybe detangle ourselves from slavery, like the European Union or something like get out of it. But, you know, so it's, it became about protecting the union and then it came about became about fighting for freedom of yes. of people of color that that did shift here. And this is yes, important. The noble cause. It becomes the yes. noble cause, which, which we love, you know, in our mythology. We talk, absolutely. As northerners, we love to pretend that the whole war was about that. <laughs> yes. It's a lot grayer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Gray like a Confederate soldier's uniform. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> so you brought up the Emancipation Proclamation. So it's a long story, but Lincoln, he he like he like previews it in September 1862. He's like, here you go, here's the peak. And then he's like He's he, like, I'd like you guys to come to my to my workshop in Midtown. <laughs> I'm just I call this I'm installation EP. Yeah. Um <laughs> <laughs> So the EP comes out officially. It's put into force January 1st, 1863. And at Fort Scott in Kansas, Captain William D. Matthews, who was one of the three leaders of color of the first Kansas unit. So they had a white commander and they had several uh, uh, command uh, sub, you know, like lieutenant leaders of color. So um, Captain William D. Matthews says, today is a day that I always thought would come. Now is our time to strike. Our own exertions and our own muscle must make us men. If we fight, we shall be respected. I see that a well-licked man respects the one who thrashes him. So he's saying, okay, this Emancipation Proclamation changes the game. Now we're we can maybe we can be federalized. Right now we're just a state rogue unit that no one yeah. gave us permission to create. Now we're getting this blessing from Father Abraham. So let's do it. So 12 days Hell later, yeah. on January 13th, 1863, the first Kansas colored was mustered into federal service and becomes a part of the federal uh, fighting force officially. So Yay! months later, the USCT gets made and these guys eventually become co-opted into the USCT, but they're already doing it. Um, so these guys saw the first Kansas unit saw a lot of action. Um, about you know nine to ten engagements all throughout Missouri, Oklahoma, Arkansas. Um, but the one that gets talked about a fair amount is what's called the Battle of Honey Springs. Okay, which is on July seventeenth, eighteen sixty-three. <laughs> the day after the New York City draft riots had sort of really ended. This battle takes place in what's known as Indian Territory, what is now Oklahoma. Yeah. So this battle is largely forgotten. It was 3,000 Northerners versus 6,000 Confederates. I've never heard of this. Yeah. It's not talked about. Um, Yeah. And it's pretty significant. So what happened was there were a lot of supply lines and roads that the North was trying to preserve as the South was trying to, you know, dismantle. It was all about supply lines. And at this point in 63, the supplies, as you are saying, as you said before, Katie, are dismal. These guys are underfed. They don't have any munitions. They're missing shoes. There's all kinds of things missing in both sides. The North is better supply. And arguably one of the reasons why they win the war is because of their supplies. Um, Yep. So this battle is fought in Indian territory. It's not even a state yet. There's a confederacy of five Native American nations that have actually pledged their fealty to the confederacy at the outset. Why? 
the American Civil War. The why is unknown to me. Um, why did what did they promise them? That's the question. Oh, I hope not slaves. Um, and it was probably just <laughs> land. Yes, we'll you know that you lie. That Air lie shake of the land. Like, yep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, but over time, as the as certain parts of the Indian Territory, you know, were lost by the Confederates or they they weren't there as often, a lot of those folks turned and supported the Union. So in this battle, mm -hmm. you this is one of the only battles in American history where the white soldiers in the north and the south were in the minority on both sides. Weird. There were black huh. and Native American fighters on both sides in this conflict. A lot of Native Americans. And so there were internecine conflicts between Native Americans going back thousands of years that were only exasperated by, usually made worse, by European or American contact, you know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we helped. Nothing. Correct. <laughs> Big time. Big time. Um, so Honey Springs was a supply depot, and the Confederates had it. The Northerners wanted it. And sure. they, made a, they made a play for it. And they took a huge gamble. They were outnumbered two to one. Um, and there was this rolling action all throughout the the uh, Arkansas River. Um, and there were several instances where the commander, a uh, gentleman by the last name of Blunt, um, put his first Kansas-colored infantry to attack. Um, and he was, again, impressed by uh, how disciplined their troops could follow directives, in this case, to charge and when to withdraw, because it's very sporadic fighting. It's like rolling action. It's not like just a big grand battle. There's little action here, little action here. Okay. You know, you make counter moves. Um, so uh, uh, General Blunt wrote after the battle, I never saw such fighting as was done by the Negro regiment. The question that Negroes will fight is settled. Besides, they make better soldiers in every respect than any troops I have ever had under my command. Well, hey. So a lot of these guys are just they're just getting these these accolades, you know. They're 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 doing great everywhere they go. And they're taking minimal damage, you know. There's only a handful of casualties, you know, from the from the infantry, you know, in both of these encounters. Um and what happened was really the Confederates lost mainly because they had really bad supplies they mm. suffered they suffered from wet gunpowder which hey that that'll, happens to us all that'll get you every time the confederates had a problem with moisture uh, same <laughs> keep your powder dry y'all it's humid y'all oh god um so then they eventually take over the depot the union guys win um uh Enemy casualties over 500, minimal casualties for the for the North. Um, and uh, the real advantage here was the fact that the Northerners had superior firepower. They had better guns, better cannon, the howitzers, um, Springfield rifles, whereas right. the Confederates had really old, smoothbore muskets, didn't even have guns that could shoot a, shoot a bullet. They shot balls at you. Bits. Forks. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Wings. They had they had flintlock <laughs> shotguns. They had flintlock shotguns. That's not good. Yeah, they're firing like forks at you, marbles, you know, pieces of glass <laughs> windows, whatever the fuck else they got. Like just yeah. hard tack. They're just throwing hard tack. In <laughs> Apparently, they were so cheap. They now this is no shade to Mexico, but the gunpowder they bought from Mexico apparently was so cheap that it was very susceptible to rainy weather. And there was some rain right before the battle. No, that is a George Costanza level uh, invitation. One. Choice problem. 
Civil War. Just goes though. to the back of the book for the gunpowder. Oh, the first ones are more expensive. Okay, flump. <laughs> yeah. So both of these sites, the Battle of Island Mound and the Battle of Honey Springs, both of them are preserved landscapes. They amazing. Yeah, it was fought that the uh, Honey Springs would be made into a national park. National parks like, nope, we're good. No, thank uh, you. <laughs> don't need it. Don't want it. <laughs> I should. Say I don't need all it, this wet gunpowder. Thank you. Very I don't much. need it. Don't want to talk about it. Um, absolutely. So uh, uh, I should have say you that. Been, I'm sorry, Luke. Have you been yeah, yeah. to the crater? Because you've talked about the crater before with me. Have now, I? Once you said, once you said crater, I was like, wait. I know this story. <laughs> I've I've been to Petersburg. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I remember. Yeah. yeah. It's it's pretty wild. Yeah. You know, there are certain stories that just like get in your mind. And like the crater, I believe, is depicted in Cold Mountain. It is. I think you're right about that. Yeah. It's a terrifying so, like, concept. Oh, yeah. And just, you know, you, you get hooked into these stories and you go to these battlefield sites and you go to these janky ass visitor centers that were made in the 1980s and you pick up a little phone and you can listen to like someone's last letter they wrote. And you walk away like so profoundly moved by these stories, yeah. you know, and yeah. you just think about what they saw. And then you see the earth that's now been beautifully, pristinely kept so that we can contemplate the minute. They were there. These battlefields are crazy to me because there's they see two or three days of action, maybe a siege for a month, and then they're preserved for 125 years, you know, 300 mm. years. And we're just like trying to we're just preserving a spot, a low, a lowly spot that was made significant by bloodshed. You know? And rarely in a place that is otherwise significant at all, that isn't otherwise significant at all. Like Gettysburg yeah. isn't anywhere or meant anything ever prior and now it's one of the most visited places in the whole of the united states yes and people may think it's strange but there's nowhere more peaceful and beautiful than a battlefield park they are the most haunting beautiful landscapes believe it or not i have never ever to my knowledge been to a civil war battlefield no kidding Mm -mm. nope no, I, I just any Elusive. I I know it's because I just haven't spent all that much time in the South or those border states. And what little time I have, I think I was doing more colonial history. Sure. <laughs> so sure. I didn't make it to the Civil War stuff. Um you have so you have been to Gettysburg in that case. I haven't. No, oh, I know you it's would, wild. Yes. So I know, yeah. but, and I'm so sensitive. I would, I would ball my eyes out. I know I would. I don't, I'm, you know. Gettysburg is crazy because the site itself is very expansive, but then you turn the corner and the Gettysburg address is delivered, you know, six months later in the cemetery. So you're like, oh God, like you're just, like, yeah. you know, no, you've got, you've already lot. got the memory, the mourning, the Lincoln alia, like, woo. no, it's, it's, um, yeah. <laughs> I will say, I believe, so this is related. So the National, the American Battlefield Trust is an amazing organization that I do want to just talk about for a second. Um, sure. They're a private nonprofit. Um, they, what their job really, their mission is to seek out the unprotected battlefield lands, lands mm. that were not carved out in the 30s, you know, by the Sons of the Confederacy or by the Park Service or by whoever. And 
trying to really redeem these really forgotten battle actions, the less significant, because they had to make a choice at some point. There were hundreds of engagements. Not everything could yeah. be chronicled and preserved. So they try to buy up. So they'll what they'll do is they'll go to a strip mall outside of Gettysburg and they'll be like, hey, okay, General Lee's Buffet, uh, H1 Nail Salon. I shit you not, there was a General Lee's Buffet in Gettysburg. I buy that, sure. You should go, if nothing else, for the kitsch factor. The, the, Done. the Lincoln Diner. I can, I can, we could go all day. So, so good. So they would Your buy Lord. these properties from these non, from these, you know, private entities or they buy people out for lifetime estates and they'd be like, yeah, we'd love to preserve your property and make it contributing to the battlefield. And they do it. And they've been doing it at these places mm. like Honey Springs and others. And so, you know, they're kind of an interesting figure in this modern analysis. So beyond that, I have an interesting fact for you. Mm. The, you know, I love a fact. The <laughs> motto of many of the colored troops. Apparently, it was either the research. I've, I know this. <laughs> so their motto was Sick Semper. Sick Semper Tyrannus. I cannot. So y'all, full circle, the same Latin that John Wilkes Booth lobbed at the audience after he shot Lincoln in the back of the head is the same rallying cry of the U.S. colored troops. It's so disturbing. Two sides of the coin. And he didn't know that. There's no way he knew that. He could not have known that. He was such no. a nerdy guy, like a nerdy theater tuck. Like oh, yeah, no, he thought that. he was being so fucking cool when he did that. Yeah. Fucking idiot. 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 Um, yeah. And uh, so that's just an interesting side side note. But as the, as the war goes on, the uh, Kansas Colored Infantry was later reorganized as the 79th U.S. Colored Troops, and later the 2nd Kansas was organized as the 83rd U.S. Colored Troops. So what happens is the guys who are in the Kansas infantry, they get mixed into Gen Pop eventually as the war goes on into 1864. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the guys who actually had these commissions, um, the three the three lieutenants actually lost their commission because they were no longer part of that unit. So they were sent into the mix. Um but one of the Interesting. one of the commanders we spoke about before um, did end up uh, Commander Williams did end up going into an artillery unit, uh, and he was able to raise rise through the ranks there to to lead them. So they had to start over again, and even with shortened time period, they still were able to to contribute. Um, I feel like artillery is so, where it's at, right? Like I'd rather be I there. I think so. I think so. I don't you know. The, I don't want to be. Obviously, I don't want to be infantry. The danger and and. <laughs> Like obviously. With artillery, the danger is also right in front of you, even though it's far away. I mean, sure. <laughs> I would be so freaked of like an accident with a mortar. Like Oh yeah, like blowing myself up. I'm sure. definitely losing a I'm definitely losing a hand. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like you're so vulnerable on the horses too. I don't want to be cavalry either. You know what? I've decided I'm just not gonna be in a war. Certainly not in the 19th century. <laughs> That's great. That's great for you. Yeah. I love that. I finally come um, to that decision. It took me <laughs> 40 years to get there. <laughs> 45 lives. So unfortunately, these battlefield sites for the Kansas Infantry Group are not preserved in a meaningful way. There's some public lands. There's some American Battlefield Trust. Um, but we'll be talking next week a little bit more about the siege of Fort Wagner. Um, mm. And the unique preservation challenges of that site, um, because that was a beachhead fort, and it's really fascinating. Um, but this is just the tip of the iceberg. And so I thought we would start with kind of some context, but also to talk a little bit about a forgotten unit um, of these guys. And so that's the story of the 
1st Kansas Colored uh, Infantry Regiment that predates the U.S. Colored Troops. So fascinating. I love I love this story. It's actually a topic I don't know an awful lot about other than like their existence and how difficult their existence was. And I'd love to hear, and hopefully in the next episode, you'll talk more about just what their experiences were like. And once they did sort of infiltrate Gen Pop, as you said, <laughs> like being in the army with other soldiers, like how how did that integration go <laughs> like was that yeah. a segregating experience in and of itself like it's a it's a story that i don't know a heck of a lot about so i i'm excited to hear more oh i'm can't wait to go into it yeah so next week we'll t- tune back in and we'll take us to uh to fort wagner with um, uh matthew broderick <laughs> he's so cute in that movie he's such a baby adorable it's like a minute after ferris bueller yeah i know yeah he's a kid and better than you'd think and better than you'd think like acting wise so good yeah 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 no and obviously guys we're gonna talk about glory so get ready get out get out your vhs tapes guys we're hitting (laughs) that hard that's right we're hitting the 80s and we're hitting a uh, a slightly better historical movie than most yeah yes yeah (laughs) they did it good all right they did until next time, we'll see you in another gallery talk inside the Mordesian Podcast. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Morbid Museum Podcast. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Get the latest on Instagram and TikTok at The Morbid Museum. Get in touch with us at themorbidmuseum at gmail.com. Consider becoming a supporter of our podcast by joining us on Patreon. Become an official Morbuddy today. Thank you.